Is the Zoom call being recorded too? Yeah, it is. It says it's being recorded up there. I mean, I've never recorded a Zoom call, but you should. I don't know if you guys can see up in the top left corner of the yeah. screen. There's, there's a recording symbol there, maybe? Yeah, it says recording. Yeah. Good. Okay. okay. Great. Um, all right. So, I don't know, listener or viewer, if you are watching us on the tubes or if you're listening to us on audio, this is our first time trying this out. Uh, we have with us a guest who will soon be introduced. Interestingly, our guest is a colleague of the dad of our podcast, uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. <laughs> That's not a great way to introduce me, by the way. <laughs> you are technically colleagues. Technically colleagues. I, I, I could see that point, but it's not how I would prefer to be, you know. But anyway, Okay. Well, I'm sure the esteemed the esteemed Jungian will come up at some point. He always does. He's like our uh, our foil. Anyway, um, he's, so fine a, he's fine as a foil. It's just as a colleague, I'm a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. uh, understandable. understandable. Technically a colleague. All right. So we have us with us. Uh, you're hearing or seeing uh, Professor Ronnie Beener, who is going to be introduced by my colleague Victor politics guy. Yeah. So um, Professor Ronald Beener is a professor at the University of Toronto in political science. He is he's focused on political theory and he's the author of numerous books, including uh, Political Philosophy, What It Is and Why It Matters, Civil Religion, A Dialogue on the History of Philosophy. And most recently, and kind of the impetus behind this podcast, is uh, Dangerous Minds, Nietzsche, Heidegger and the Return of the Far Right. So maybe we could begin, uh, Professor Beener, and you could tell us a little bit about the main thesis of the book, what you're trying to accomplish in the book. Okay, well, uh, the background is pretty clearly the rise of the far right, or the resurgence of fascism, or various forms of fascism light, which we're seeing all around us, all kinds of crazy new ideologies that are popping out of the woodwork, and it's something that we have to contend with quite seriously as citizens. Um, I guess I started getting, I, I developed my interest uh, in the far right actually early in 2015. And as, at that moment, just things started becoming more and more worrying and they started really getting alarmed as many people did in 2016. Uh with Brexit, with the election of Donald Trump, with other versions of right populism. And I felt some kind of inner need, uh, not so much as a theorist, but as a citizen, to warn fellow, fellow citizens about uh, the ideological ferment uh, on the far right. And it was deeply shocking to me as I started exploring far right websites that people who are very uh, sometimes extremely well-educated uh, with PhDs, PhDs in philosophy, uh, and, and considerable intellectual equipment being drawn back to the, you know, the breeding grounds of 20th century fascism in the 1920s. And it's as if, well, here, history's repeating itself, you know. Uh, what was called the conservative revolution in the 1920s, well, it's back. And so we have far-right uh, presses like Arctos devoted to resurrecting these people. You know, this, the, 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 the Spanglers 
and and the uh, 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 Ernst Youngs and the and the Schmitz and 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 this like cranking cranking history up again to produce a kind of similar outcome, maybe with some t- tweaking, uh, you know, the fascism of the '30s a little bit, so that it's maybe less you know, egregiously violent or less genocidal, but in terms of what's driving it intellectually, the sense of a liberal egalitarian civilization as decadent from top to bottom and requiring a radical surgery or radical overthrowing, that that project is kind of back in business, um, uh, one would have hoped. And it's certainly the hope at the latter decades of the 20th century that fascism had been permanently deposited, had been so utterly discredited by what we came to know in 1945 that had been permanently deposited in the rubbish bin of history. Well, it turns out that wasn't the case, and it's a deep shock to <laughs> find out it's, 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 it's not the case. I mean, it was in the news yesterday, I think, that most uh, most high school students in the United States don't know that six million Jews perished in the Holocaust. Wow. How, how can you have wow. a kind of historical blind a blind spot of, of of those proportions? Well, if if historical memory is that short and that uh, unreliable and that fickle. Well, we're in real trouble. So here we are 75 years later, and we can't count on people knowing how evil fascism is and, and, and what, what perils, uh, you know, lie for all of us in, in its resurgence. And, you know, uh, so I became a, a bit obsessed, and I remain obsessed. It's been like for five years now with certain intellectuals who are as I said, highly educated, have PhDs in philosophy, and have uh, hyper energy, megalomaniacal energy, which they put into, and they have technical skills to build websites and develop large numbers of followers. Uh, You know, people like Richard Spencer, he's a more familiar name, Greg Johnson, runs a website called called Countercurts, Jason Giorgiani, who teamed up with Spencer to form an alt-right corporation. Uh, you know, these people are all extremely smart and they're all extremely dangerous. And what does it say about the world we're living in that they're putting massive energy into rebooting fascism? Does Spencer have a PhD? Masters. Started. He started, he has a master's from the University of Chicago. He has a bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia. And he started a doctoral program in history uh, at Duke. He pulled out of it and became a kind of editor and, you know, uh, for far-right per- periodicals. So he didn't complete his PhD. There was some rumors floating around that he had been expelled. I don't know if those rumors are true. He had the equipment to pro- probably have a PhD. Um uh, he studied with a friend of mine, Michael Gillespie, uh, at, at Duke, to, to, took a Nietzsche seminar there, apparently took a Nietzsche <laughs> seminar at the University of Chicago with Robert Pippin that kind of 
was the start of all this and mm. claims that, you know, this is what he was red pilled by Nietzsche to use this famous phrase. Uh, this opened his eyes to the decadence of a liberal egalitarian society. And he wants to resume the Nietzschean project of destroying a liberal uh, egalitarian civilization. And Ronnie, you're you're making this sound really bad. And you've mentioned Spencer, bad guy, folks, but he's been totally deplatformed and has disappeared, at least to me, someone who pays at least elliptical attention to this sort of shit. But you're making not just right wing politics, but actual fascism sound far more diffuse and far more widespread so is it it really? is it is it is more can widespread. i just throw in an anecdote here because this is actually quite funny uh, i actually met victor brazzoni uh politics guy at a party uh at my then apartment in 2016 where we were all gathering together to watch donald trump go down in flames and victor will remember this because uh he was like do you think you know clearly clinton's gonna win i'm like oh yeah it's a sure thing and he was like yeah i think so too and everybody in this like podcast uh was there and we were all stunned, like just glued to the TV at 2.30 in the morning. And we'd had a couple of sh- like whiskeys and stuff. And we were like, is this actually happening? Like, I just can't believe it. No, we like, had to go out and get more whiskey, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, we did. We were like, well, this is apparently going to be a longer night than we all thought it was. And that actually sparked my interest in a lot of these phenomena as well, because I just couldn't understand how something like this could happen in the 21st century, right? It's not supposed to happen. It seems like that had been relegated, as you put it, to the rubbish bin of history. Uh, and here it was again, you know. And then the search for the silent majority began, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, so I, I won't say that I wasn't uh, shocked and stunned by the election of Trump, of course, I, I was. But the, the real true shock set in when he br- brought in Steve Bannon as his senior counsel. That's when the red lights really started flashing. Uh, I mean, a colleague of mine, political science, I think the day after the election said to me, or maybe it was two days after the election said to me, well, the real test of where this is going is what happens to Steve Bannon. If, mm. tr- if Trump brings Bannon into the White House, then we're all fucked. The whole world is fucked. And <laughs> observation by, you know, very astute political scientists made a big impression on me. And then sure enough, you know, a week later, Trump announces Bannon is going to be a senior counselor, uh, you know, senior, senior advisor with an office right next to the Oval Office. Now, Bannon is a fascist. We now know this. Um, he's not... A, that's not the I would call him a coked out gimp first. <laughs> okay. You can you can call him lots of things, but Powerful. You know, in terms of the, the topic being discussed here, what matters is his involvement in and his fascination with and his uh, I'd say you know complicity with fascism or the project of re rejuvenating or re or the resurgence of fascism. So we now know this very clearly. So uh, someone uh, who I've had some contacts with, uh, uh, someone who teaches at the University of Colorado Boulder uh, named Benjamin Teitelbaum, published a book in the spring uh, uh, on Bannon called War for Eternity. And and I've had some communications with Teitelbaum as he's writing the book. He spent the last few years having... A long conversations with Bannon, you know, running after Bannon all over the world and having long interviews with him, as well as other people with 
lots of power, lots of access to high power in Brazil and Russia and now in the United States, uh, and and tracing these people's intellectual sources, where, where they're coming from intellectually. Well, there are some pretty shocking revelations in this book. I'm very surprised Bannon you know, made these uh, confessions to Teitelbaum. I, I don't know why he did it, but, you know, there's a much, there. he's dropped hints along the way that he had a kind of fascination with Julius Savola. Well, Julius Savola, you know, prided himself on being well to the right of 20th century fascism, including Nazism. They, they, you know, he uh, cons, uh, uh, fashioned himself a an aristocrat, and fascism was supposed to be a movement to, you know, put uh, aristocracy back in the driver's seat as Nietzsche wished it to be. And and so for him, you know, fascism, actually existing fascism was still too populist, too democratic, too egalitarian. So he thought, you know, he saw himself as to the right of fascism. Mm. Uh, anyway, Interested in Julius Evola, though the kind of alarm bells start fl- flashing, and not just that, but apparently one of the most dangerous fascist ideologues, you know, uh, on the scene today, still living. Evola's dead; he died, I think, in '74, but still living is Alexander Dugin in Russia. Bannon apparently had an eight-hour meeting with Dugin in Rome in the in the fall of 2018. And we now know that we didn't know it at the time, but now we know it thanks to Teitelbaum's book. And, it, you know, uh, Bannon says to him, uh, to Teitelbaum, how much he admires Dugan. Well, uh, so, well, I, you know, I admire Mussolini or I admire, you know, you might as well be holding up a placard saying, I am a fascist. <laughs> this is someone who had an office, right? I mean, not for four years, for it was seven months, a little bit more than seven months, but still an office next to the Oval Office in the White House. And Ronnie, if you, your friend told you um, that this, where Steve Bannon would go would be the indication of, of the future, and the fact that he got ousted, you know, not immediately, but almost immediately, what does that, does that give you more hope for the future then, given the thesis you're presenting here? I'd be hesitant to count any of these people out. So you can say, well, uh, Spencer has fallen on hard times. He can't even pay, you know, a lawyer. So that's good news. So, you know, the more <laughs> Spencer's legal and financial problem, the better for the world. And same with Adam <laughs> Reno a couple of weeks ago, got arrested aboard a lux- luxurious yacht owned by a billionaire friend of his. Uh, so good, you know, so yeah. he's got problems. It's, it's, you know, he's had uh, significant setbacks. But, you know, Bannon keeps popping back up. He kind of has nine lives. And yeah. uh, uh, I wouldn't say, well, I mean, if, if Trump gets reelected on the 3rd of November, <laughs> he can <laughs> pardon uh, Bannon and pardon all kinds of other kind of thugs and criminals. Uh, so he would never do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I actually was yeah. wondering, I was wondering if maybe just from the perspective of political theory and also for the listeners, we've been, you, we've been throwing the word, you know, fascism around. And I think maybe it would be useful just to, to get like, um, maybe Professor Beaner, you could tell me, like, how would you define sort of like philosophically or like the main tenets of fascism? 
And if you could establish or elaborate on something else you said in, in keeping with that, you said uh, fascism is aristocratic, but I'm not a political theorist, but fascism has always been a middle class movement in in my in my pedestrian understanding of political theory. Well, what something presumes to be and where it draws its popular support are, can be two radically different things. So we have to keep that in mind. But yeah, I agree. We need to kind of back up a few steps and, and uh, I, I, you know, I need to fill in more of the picture about what, what the book's about and how, how it proceeds and, uh, and, and what it's trying to in, in engage with uh, theoretically. So, <clears throat> you know, most the bulk of the book is, I mean, there's some discussions at the beginning about some of these uh, contemporary uh, far-right characters like Richard Spencer and then some reflections at the end uh, about the historical moment and how worrisome it is and the perils of contemporary liberal democratic citizenship. But the bulk of it in the middle is a dialogue with Nietzsche and Heidegger which might seem a bit strange, uh, although all these people put a lot of emphasis on how much they, including Spencer, how much they owe to Nietzsche and Heidegger. These are heroes of all these figures on the far right, and I don't, that's an accident, and I think it obliges us to take another hard, tough look at, you know, Nietzsche and Heidegger and their cultural, philosophical influence in you know, in contemporary culture and the contemporary academy. So I think Nietzsche is very helpful. No, Heidegger, we know, was a fascist in the sense that he joined the Nazi party in 1933. Uh, he resigned the position he had assumed as rector of Freiburg, but he never relinquished his party membership. So in that sense, he was a fascist until the war ended in 1945. And I have, I think substantial reason to think that his political sympathies remained where they were before the defeat. I mean, you know, if, if, if the war had gone the other way in 1945, he would have remained, you know, a, uh, uh, you know, an adherent of, of far, far politics. Then the Nazis lost the war. I mean, he was critical in various ways of the Nazis. Fine but he never tore up his party membership. So that's pretty telling. In Nietzsche's case, well, he couldn't have been a fascist because he died in 1900. And the fascist, you know, fascism started in the early 20s and, and, and reigned in Italy and Germany in the 30s. So in Italy in, both in the 20s and 30s and 40s. So Nietzsche, I think, is a crucial figure. You can't call him fascist because fascism didn't exist. But you can you can certainly call him proto-fascist. Now people resist that and think that's unfair to him. Uh, I don't think it's unfair. Again, the the people who composed the Conservative Revolution in the 1920s in Weimar Germany, they were all ardent Nietzscheans, uh, including Heidegger and uh, uh, and 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 Junger and and Spengler and all these people. They and they there it was. I think there was in, it was on the basis of certain insight into what Nietzsche's project is. So what is that project? Well, I would say that the, the um, key issue with respect to the meaning of political modernity 
is her- where one stands towards the French Revolution, the principles of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a kind of egalitarian cultural revolution in the West. It's taken for granted now. It's the it's some broad sense the basis for the air we breathe morally and politically. Uh, Nietzsche regards the French Revolution as a catastrophe for the West. He spells this out very, very clearly in the genealogy of morals. And if someone hasn't wrestled with that, I, I think they're kind of off the target. We're not seeing the, the, you know, the real picture with respect to Nietzsche. Nietzsche's project, Nietzsche's view is that, you know, it's a disaster to abolish hierarchy, to abolish rank order, to abolish uh, uh, inherited privilege. All those things are disasters. That a civilization that attempts to do that will be not a civilization at all, but a faux civilization, a faux culture. That's what liberal modernity is, and it has to be destroyed. Because human beings, rather than elevating us to a higher moral plane, it will be the cause of human beings becoming less human. It is a dehumanizing cultural event. Can I interrupt, please? Uh, sorry, one sec. Um, the French Revolution was a catastrophe for the West, but Christianity was a catastrophe for the West, according to Nietzsche. And if Christianity is a catastrophe, then there is no West that's being extolled in Nietzsche. So what is the civilization that you are uh, referring to in, in reference to Nietzsche? That's not, that's not the case. I mean, uh, the, the West didn't begin with Christianity. The, the West began with paganism. Yeah, I, I know that. But then if you're saying that Nietzsche is trying to defend the pre-French Revolution West, then he's only defending like Homeric Greece, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why is, why is Christianity the, you know, the source of all evil in Nietzsche? Why, why is it the privileged target of all of his massive rhetorical energies? You have to really think hard about that. If you haven't answered that question, you've made no progress in, in a dialogue with Nietzsche. Well, here, yeah. uh, it's the egalitarianism of Christianity. We're all brothers of, you know, children of God. We're all brothers. We're all equal. And we're all creatures of God. And that's, that's the key to the, the human status, is that God looks on all his children as if they're uh, equal. And that's the, you know, that's the moral center of Christianity. Well, it's that moral center that eventually gave rise to the French Revolution. You know, via first the Reformation, then the Enlightenment, and then the French Revolution. It's a kind of inexorable trajectory drawing conclusions, uh, you know, out of the, the basic premises of Christianity that hadn't yet been drawn, but were inevitable if you found your civil, civilization on a religion like Christianity that is committed to uh, human equality as the core principle. Of course, no society has ever, you know, succeeded in you know, achieving these egalitarian aspirations. But the question is, what are the principles? And that's what Nietzsche's addressing. So for our listeners, um, if, you've lo- if you've listened to our episode on Nietzsche, um, this is us talking about um, the opposition between what Nietzsche calls the slave ethic, which he sees the egalitarian principles springing from, and the aristocratic 
moral ethic, which he sees as the what we're referring to here as the uh, sort of hierarchical idea that Nietzsche prefers. And Nietzsche does give examples over history. Rome is a big one, but also the Vikings, the samurai, the Homeric the Greeks. He, he gives a, a spattering of examples. Of Icelandic Icelandic sagas. He loves Icelandic sagas. Anyone who slaughters on a whim is really in, in Nietzsche's uh, good books, but he, he has this... Yes, <laughs> it's a test of your willpower. <laughs> you have, we have to be tested whether we can do certain things without flinching. And the fascist, you know, fascism can do that. It, it meets that test. People die in large numbers. Blood gets spilled you know, like rivers in the streets. And a human being who can uh, uh, do these things and not flinch, well, I can interject yes, that. and Christians don't, and, and liberals don't, and you know, children of the Enlightenment. But, okay, Richard Spencer doesn't want to establish like an Icelandic nomadic raiding society, though. I wouldn't rule that out. Um, <laughs> well, it's a new context. If I could interject, today. Though, there's this amazing, um, sorry, th there's this speech that um, Heinrich Himmler gave to the SS, I think it was in late 1942, but it might have been in 1943, uh, where he makes exactly the kind of point that you're iterating, uh, Ronnie. Uh, where he says, many of you are going to feel truly bad about what you're doing, and that's to be expected, and it's a testament to your humanity. But you need to realize that compassion to the present is cruelty towards the future, and you need to have the willpower to carry out this great project of extermination, essentially. Right? Uh, and it does invoke this idea that this mastery of will to do what must be done uh, is a moral virtue uh, that's characteristic of Nazism and that elevates it uh, above the kind of more squishy... Um, political ideologies out there that aren't willing to do what must be done by exterminating uh, all the people who don't belong. Um, and it, it does kind of resemble what you're talking about in some senses, right? This idea of being a warrior, able to fight, able to kill uh, without feeling remorse or pity. The Nazis were more self-consciously Nietzschean than, you know, Nietzsche's fan base in the Contemporary Academy would ever want to acknowledge. You know, in the book I discuss. Nietzsche going to uh, Hitler. Hitler going to the Nietzsche archives in Weimar, uh, presided over by Hitler's uh, sorry <laughs> Nietzsche's sister, who ran the archives, and uh, you know warmly embracing each other, and then takes along a state photographer and gazes up at a big bust of Nietzsche, and you know this is moments of Hitler, you know, communing with. The great uh, proto-fascist philosopher Nietzsche is preserved for posterity. Why? Well, Hitler wanted to say, well, we, you know, we fascists, we, we take philosophy seriously. And we see ourselves, we're not just, you know, it's not just a kind of expediency or opportunism. This is principles where we are committed to certain principles. And Nietzsche was the, the one who articulated those uh, principles. You know, the Bolsheviks, they have Karl Marx. We have Frederick Nietzsche sent Mussolini a copy of Nietzsche's collected works. Could you elaborate those principles, Ronnie, just for our audience? Well, I, that's what I think I've been <laughs> doing <laughs> the last five minutes, that, that you have to build your political culture on hierarchy, on, on top-down authority, on an idea that, that, that all, social order requires that things move from... from from top to bottom, 
that there has to be a great man at the top, an Ubermensch, uh, who legislates for the rabble. Because if you leave the rabble to themselves, you don't have order. You just have nothing. You have emptiness. You have cultural, you have the last man, which is which means kind of, you know, just sheer banality. And that's intolerable. And human beings, this is the thesis, human beings will not tolerate this. They will, I mean, you could say that the revival of fascism in the 21st century is, again, a vindication of Nietzsche. Nietzsche was, there was no fascism ideologically at all. I mean, there was anti-Semitism at the end of the 19th century, but fascism as an ideology didn't exist. And Nietzsche said, well, you just wait, you know, wait a few decades, and you're going to have gigantic uh, ideological wars for the control, for the rule of the planet between left and right. And, and you will see cataclysms that you've never seen in human history to, to fight over first the principle of equality over the, versus the principle of hierarchy. And we'll see what the outcome is. And I will be famous because I predicted those ideological wars. Well, he was totally right. Totally, totally right. Nobody, you know, you go to go read John Stuart Mill, there's no predictions of uh, 20th century being characterized by ideological wars where everything, you know, the whole of Europe will be inflamed over principles. Uh, well, Nietzsche predicted that. <laughs> I also predicted that he would be heralded as one of the greatest thinkers of his time, which, you know. He was right. He was yeah. right. Sounds a little like Marx. He, he was totally unknown. But lo and behold, you know, all these predictions were right. And now, 21st century, again, you could see as a vindication of, 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 of Nietzsche that somehow there's a dissatisfaction with, you know, liberal <coughs> polities founding themselves simply on principles of decency and, and prudence and mutual respect and recognition of each other as citizens. That's not, you know, Nietzsche's claim is that's not humanly satisfying. So when Heidegger was enthusiastic about it, he he sort of talked about it like a renewal of the German spirit. He he saw kind of in fascism, but I, I think actually Matt looks like he's got something he wants. Yeah. I, I just wanted to read this. This is a quote from Mein Kampf uh, that might actually iterate what you're talking about. Uh, and obviously this is disgusting language and uh, it represents kind of an abominable principle. So to our viewers, you know, I apologize for invoking some of it, but I think it's clarifying where uh, Hitler says the Jewish doctrine of Marxism rejects the, quote, aristocratic principle of nature and replaces the eternal privilege of power and strength by the mass numbers and their dead weight. Thus, it denies the value of personality in man, contests the significance of nationality and race, and thereby withdraws from humanity the promise of its existence and its culture. As a foundation of the universe, this doctrine, the Jewish doctrine of Marxism, would bring about the end of any order intellectually conceivable to man, and as in this greatest of all recognizable organisms, the result of an application of such a law could only be chaos on Earth. It could be only the destruction of the inhabitants of this planet. If with the help of this Marxist creed, the Jew is victorious over other peoples of this world, his crown will be the funeral wreath of humanity and this planet will, as it did thousands of years ago, move through the ether devoid of men. Eternal nature inexorably avenges the infringements uh, of her commands. Uh, now, obviously, you know, I imagine that Nietzsche would be disgusted by the kind of anti-Semitism and racism and nationalism and this, uh, but this notion of an aristocratic principle of nature yeah, that, uh, that has to be me. juxtaposed against egalitarian doctrines, in this case, the Jewish doctrine of Marxism, it does seem to kind of echo what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, not even echo, it seems to directly 
refer it to lines up and about. it's important to know Nietzsche also he you know judeo christian he often lumped them together and as we see the Heidegger black books emerging too and 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 how far Heidegger was into this way of thinking judeo christian tended to be something they lumped together hitler more so lopped off the christian part and focused on the jewish part but really like like fascism what it's it's anti-religious in general anyway well, there's a lot to be said there. So Nietzsche and Heidegger are very different. You wouldn't want to lump them together. Heidegger was just a kind of garden variety anti-Semite, as we now know very clearly. Nietzsche was more complicated. So he presented himself as anti-anti-Semitic, and he celebrated as a kind of maybe even philo-Semitic, although I think that's going way too far. Mm-hmm. But there's, a, a, at a deeper level, there's a sense in which the that disgusting passage you read from Hitler, and one should point out there's a lot of disgusting passages yeah. in Nietzsche. There are, there are genocidal passages in Nietzsche. I quote them in my book. Uh, but with respect to anti-Semitism, so at a deeper level, the Hitler's thesis is not that different from uh, uh, Nietzsche's thesis because Nietzsche, in his, you know, insanely kind of stoked up polemics against Christianity puts tremendous emphasis on the Jewish origins of Christianity. He does that systematically. And, and the idea is, well, where, okay, the contemporary liberal West, where did that come from? That came from the egalitarianism of Christianity. Well, where did that come from? Well, it comes from Judaism. And Nietzsche put a lot of emphasis upon that. Again, the genealogy of morals, when he's Denouncing the French Revolution, you know, he says, well, the ultimate choices here, French Revolution versus Napoleon, uh, the, the, you know, the, the Napoleon represents the superiority of certain great individuals and the French Revolution represents the opposite. Well, the same, you get also the formula, Judea versus Rome. Those are fundamental civilizational choices, civilizational alternatives. You have to, you can't go both ways. There's a fork in the road. And you either go with the Romans towards grandeur and will and imposition of one's, you know, supremacy, as uh, and, or the, you know you go the Jewish route and uh, and and they, there is a kind of master thesis that the whole of the West has been corrupted by the Jews via Christianity. Christianity is kind of like a, a middle middleman in this narrative. That, that where this is coming from is more fundamental than Christianity is, you know, the Jewish origins of Christianity. Well, that's Hitler's, that's Hitler's thesis. It's a Nietzschean thesis. I mean, Nietzsche can say, yeah, I hate anti-Semites. They're just ideologues. I mean, I think it's important to point out that Nietzsche, unlike Heidegger, was anti-nationalist. He, he hated German nationalism. And, and Heidegger was a German nationalist a very emphatic German nationalist. So that's a real chasm between them. But but why is Nietzsche anti-nationalist? Is he anti-nationalist because it's illiberal? No, no. It's it's not illiberal enough that he, he wants, you know, a kind of pan-European vision because it's grander. So it's a kind of nationalism versus imperialism. It's not... He doesn't side with liberalism over against nationalism. He sides with imperialism over against nationalism. What what does he emphasize about nationalism that he detests? It's pettiness. It's yeah, yeah. right. 
It's weakness. It's weakness. It's taking credit for other people's achievements. Unambitious. Oh, merely the Germans. So what's what's? Why did the Germans matter so much? What matters are the Europeans and beyond the Europeans, control of the planet. So the nationalism is too limited in its ambition. I need to at least get some elaboration on this thesis because it's driving me nuts because I disagree with it so vehemently. Um, first of all, I want to go back way to the to the Hitler quote, the Hitler quote that Nietzsche or that uh, Matt read says this stuff goes from uh, natural aristocracy to nationalism and race. So Hitler makes that move quite fluidly, of course. Nietzsche arguably never makes that move, and you could make a case that he does. But again, like you said, this is what I was bubbling up inside about. He's a vehemently anti-nationalist, but now you're going so far to say is he's a, like a global nationalist, wants the Ubermensch to conquer the world, whereas I don't see Nietzsche or read Nietzsche at all in that political sense. Because he far, talks far more about music and art than he talks about politics. I don't think he has a political vision in mind because I think he's writing for individuals and he says as much in uh, Beyond Good and Evil. I'm writing for the individuals that are to come. So I don't see this as we need a, a state of people that will subdue other people in a political manner or with a political project in mind. I just think he thinks that's a natural result of that natural aristocracy, which again is illiberal. But I don't think he's thinking that this is like, has really much to do with politics at all. Okay, so I, I need to respond to that. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we never promised no pushback. <laughs> there'll be a little pushback. So uh, this is a very common reading of Nietzsche. It, uh, it's, you know, very much to Nietzsche's credit that he induces people to read him in that way. And it means, means, you know, that people, people don't feel Nietzsche to be, you know, dangerous or threatening if he's, you know, if he's basically non-political and is addressing himself to individuals in a non-political dimension. I, I think that's, a, uh, a, a, a reading that is far too kind to Nietzsche and doesn't, doesn't penetrate deeply into, no, into enough, it, it doesn't penetrate enough into what the Nietzschean project is. There is a project, and that project is political through and through. I would say that every single page in Nietzsche, including the one <laughs> pages you're reading is not political, are political. Nietzsche is political through and through. Beyond Good and Evil is a very political book. I think you're kind of being captivated by certain, you know, certain texts within that book. They're leading you to think, well, there's no political problem here. But you've got to, I think, reread the book or reread Nietzsche in general and, and with an eye to what, how political it is. I can admit there's a political project if you mean political in a general sense, but you're talking about this like it's a governmental or bureaucratic. Well, project. good and evil is is like the ruling class ideology, pretty much. He's referring to there, right? That's what I would see it anyway. Good and evil is Christian morality. Good and bad is is aristocratic morality. So he's really talking about like hegemonic 
which is political from a culture studies standpoint. It's always political. He's talking about the hegemonic ruling class ideas. Right. I think the question we're talking about here then is, is he talking about a state or not? And I adamantly disagree. Or a culture or institutions. Here, I have a passage from Beyond Good and Evil uh, that I think is illuminating, actually, because it does talk about politics. And he says, Beyond Good and Evil, page 258, uh, when, for an example, an aristocracy like pre-revolutionary France tosses away its privileges with sublime revulsion and sacrifices itself to excess of moral feeling, this is corruption. It was really only the final act of that centuries-long corruption that caused the aristocracy to abandon its tyrannical authority bit by bit and reduce itself to a function of a monarchy, and ultimately, in fact, to its ornament and showpiece. The crucial thing about a good and healthy aristocracy, however, is that it does not feel that it is a function, whether of monarchy or of community, but rather an essence and highest justification, and that therefore it has no misgivings in condoning the sacrifice of a vast number of people who must for its sake be oppressed and diminished into incomplete people, slaves, and tools. And that's from Beyond Good and Evil, where he basically says, right, an aristocracy shouldn't even be concerned with having a purpose. Uh, it should look upon the people as slaves, tools, uh, and incomplete people. Uh, and that's the, you know, kind of the be-all and end-all. You didn't end say it, right? should in there. <laughs> you, you put the should in, and this is my problem with this whole thing. It's like you're saying Nietzsche is saying should, which he's an amoralist, hey, well, doesn't do. Yeah, but I, I think here when he says a good and healthy aristocracy, right? He doesn't really talk in normative terms, in term, uh, in prescriptive. Yeah, there terms. he's speaking about he's the saying, past, but that's about that's a moral claim. That's not a political project. But but I think this is one of the difficult things about Nietzsche's like work, right? He's not a moralist, so he can't say you should do this, but he can say a good and healthy aristocracy right. that performs life affirming functions would do this. And part of the problem is a, the good and healthy aristocracy in pre-revolutionary France gave that up. No, that right? wasn't a healthy uh, <laughs> that wasn't a healthy aristocracy. If it was healthy, they wouldn't have well, got yeah, owned. Yeah, that's the point because they gave up these privileges, right? They started treating No, people. because they were resentful. This is why they this isn't this is not to me political at least a political project. This is just like okay. I'll, it's I'll a psychological it. project even more than that. Okay, I'll, I'll let Ronnie speak because I can see that he's eager to say something, and he's our guest, of course. But well, I think the disagreements are so huge at this point; it's hard to know where to start. I mean, I'd go back to what, what I was talking about at, at the beginning of the conversation. That if I'm right, that the fundamental core of Nietzsche's preoccupations uh, is the what what modern egalitarianism has done to European culture. And that can't be fixed culturally. It has to be fixed politically to destroy the basic dispensation uh, bequeathed to us by the French Revolution. That the destruction of that is 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 not a cultural project. It is a political project. And I think Nietzsche's basic idea is, you know, even if you say, well, what he what he fundamentally cares about is culture. Yeah, that's right. But you can't have a culture within. A egalitarian horizon and and to say it's not prescriptive not normative uh that is I, I, the, to me that's just a profound misreading every just like every page of nietzsche is political well even more so every page of nietzsche is prescriptive it's normative uh it's you know the rhetoric is just bursting with a normative charge it's everything everything in nietzsche is normatively charged he hates the world he's living in and is screaming from the rooftops for people to realize how empty and and nihilistic it is and that the whole human status rests on our 
capacity to affect a revolution. You can't affect that revolution by speaking individual to individual. I mean, sure, individual readers can read his books, but that's not what's going to change the world. He wants to change the world uh, to, 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 to remove the reigning disp dispensation, which is a fundamentally post-Christian, post-Enlightenment, post-Reformation, egalitarian dispensation, and go back to aristocracy. To say that he does, he's not... He, you can't go back, though. That's what he never, ever says. <laughs> That's okay, we don't go, we go back to something even more uh, hierarchical, even more, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, okay, let's go forward to new, well, what's, what's going forward mean? It, it, going forward is going forward to fascism. No. Right. Well, a, a conception of hierarchy, that's non-Christian. That's pagan. I mean, there's, it's not an accident that, that, you know, fascists like, you know, uh, uh, Julius Savola or Alain de Benoit, these people are pro-pagan for Nietzschean reasons. Uh, I should say, Ryan, they, that to have the kind of politics that. they want, to have the kind of political horizon they want, it can't be founded on Christianity. It has to be found on paganism. That's a Nietzschean argument. That's a Nietzschean vision. And it's a political vision. And... Um, uh, I mean, you can say, well, okay, Nietzsche was, you know, there, there were things that separated Nietzsche from, from the Nazis. I'm not saying, well, he's a full-blown Nazi, or he would have, like Heidegger, got a membership card in the Nazi party mm -hmm. if he was still around in 1933. I mean, his sister was a Nazi, but we can't hold that against him. But, but, but in, in terms of the basic preoccupations, that the choices here are living in a fundamentally, within a fundamentally liberal, cultural, political, moral, normative dispensation with no culture, because he thinks that cannot produce a culture, or something else, something radically illiberal, something radically a-liberal, post-liberal, uh, and post-Christian. Uh, well, you're kind of then sliding into fascist territory. That's why I would call his thought fundamentally proto-fascist. Well, you have a different reading, but we would have to go and like start reading, you know, Beyond Good and Evil page by page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to transcend my position in this argument rather and then shift it over to Victor, who sent me a message a while ago that he wanted to talk. Yeah, well, I, I just want to interject okay. and say uh, we split on exactly these lines last time, Ronnie, so don't yeah, feel bad. Yeah. In, like in our Nietzsche episode, we did the same thing. Yeah. You know, I can't expect to persuade everyone. There's modern culture is full of, of people who are, you know, love Nietzsche. And I used to love Nietzsche myself. Well, uh, I don't yeah. even love Nietzsche, though. Like, I'm, no, a, I'm, a, I'm a leftist, but I don't like Nietzsche very much either. Anyway, maybe, sorry, sorry, Victor, Victor before. Uh, yes, OK. I, I think it might. Victor, sorry. First, just it might be helpful to say, um, like, the reason maybe a lot of resentment comes up around Nietzsche and even Heidegger too, the supplies too, is because they have been so sort of um, central to the institutional left that's emerged in the post sixties. So, I mean, if you're, if you're reading someone like Foucault and you understand that he's derived his method from Nietzsche's genealogical approach to uh, which is essentially a kind of philology, tracing words back to their origins and using them in a kind of developmental historical argument. 
it, it can be a little bit difficult to hear that Nietzsche has all of this dangerous side and, and we have to be very careful with him because we've invested so much in reading him and in many ways like sort of rehabilitating him because we've all heard the story about his sister and how, he's, how she kind of distorted his texts. But I think, yeah, like when we're so invested in him intellectually and not me, but other people career-wise, it, it can be a little bit difficult to have these conversations maybe. So it's good to keep that in mind, especially when we come from a more, like we're all maybe varying positions on the left. Maybe I'm a bit more f further left than other people are here. And so Nietzsche's played a big role in that, especially, you know, in his in, in that text about uh, on truth and falsity in the non-moral sense. That's a major post-structuralist kind of proto-text. Right. So so these feelings do come out and they're I mean, they're good. It's I think it's therapeutic. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, very aware of this, of course. And that's why I wrote my book. Probably the biggest reason why I wrote my book. I knew I swayed any right Nietzsche. So I didn't really write the book for them. I wrote it for left Nietzsche's to try to persuade them that they've made a gigantic mistake their money on the wrong horse and mm. and it's very disturbing that uh you know three of the biggest heroes of uh the intellectual left in recent decades have been you know two fascists and one proto-fascist namely Nietzsche Heidegger and Schmidt uh something yeah. radically wrong with the contemporary intellectual left when you're going to the far right for your intellectual sources and, and, you know, if, if, if fascism really had been destroyed, you know, in perpetuity in 1945, so utterly discredited, could never make a comeback, well, fine, you know, and then, then, you know, the, the, the Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Schmidt are not dangerous in the way they might be if the, if the right is making a big comeback, which arguably it is. And, you know, if I didn't feel it was making that kind of comeback, I would not have written written or published this book. It, it was, you know, we, we need to take another look at these thinkers in the context of a big revival of the intellectual right. Mm. Uh, and, 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 you know, leftists need to take another look at Nietzsche and Heidegger and, and ask themselves, you know, they're really getting their sources from the right place. I mean, part of it is yeah. just intellectual honesty that, you know, Nietzsche is just not a uh, thinker of the left and never could be. That eighty percent of his intellectual energies are going into denouncing equality, uh, uh, and and he, you know, he hates modernity because it's too egalitarian. How could that be a source for the left? It just you know, it's the most basic question. Is you know, the fundamental choice here is between our equality and hierarchy. And Nietzsche is the you know supreme theorist of hierarchy, and he says it. Mm -hmm and again and again. Cultures that are not based on rank order will not be cultures. And, and you can't delude yourself into thinking you have a culture in the context of a egalitarian dispensation. That's why you have to destroy the French Revolution and destroy Christianity and even Judaism insofar as it led to Christianity. Uh, yeah. And certainly destroy the Enlightenment, certainly destroy the Reformation. This is, you know, the, this is where the right is coming from. And that's why the right, it's not just leftists who love Nietzsche. It's people on the right, you know, read, you know, go back to the 1920s Weimar Germany 
And then look at some of these websites who are trying to revive all that. And they're Nietzschean for the same reason that, you know, the Spanglers and the Jungers uh, and and, and the Schmitz were, were Nietzschean. Yeah, so I, I so I had I a. I just want to interject and say, yeah, Victor's been waiting. Yeah, yeah. I've been, been waiting. Okay, yeah. So, I, so <laughs> Professor Beener, I was curious about how you see like like liberalism itself as being something because I think maybe in to some extent there's figures on both the right and the left and maybe like the far left, right? There's a kind of dissatisfaction, right, with with liberalism. With I think you even wrote a book in in maybe the '90s called like with, with liberalism. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm curious about... I'm now a chastened critic of liberalism because there are things much worse than liberalism. Right, right. So, so That should be obvious. You know, 1992, supposedly liberalism had won. Liberal democracy had vanquished all right. ideological rivals and we could... Uh, the fall, fall of communism. The yeah. fall of communism and the, fall and, and the defeat of fascism. And so liberal democracy was in the saddle. And, you know, that was the context in which I wrote that book. Uh, and, uh, you know, worries about liberal triumphalism. I, I would say things very differently now, that the real threat mm. now is liberalism being defeated by the right. Um, that's, that's, that's the context for this book, in contrast with the 1992 book. I mean, they're different eras, you know. But I'm curious if you have, like, thoughts about how to you know, address, because I think there's war, there's like a, there's like, seems to be a hunger, right, on like the far left and the far right for something for like, or a, a, a sort of a distaste for the way liberalism, right, it creates uh, something that is experienced as kind of like this, this boring, like non-life affirming. And I just wonder whether there's something, there's so, like, you have any thoughts about how to make liberalism address those things better, or if you see cap, like, maybe how you see capitalism as potentially part of that equation, just the way, like, it doesn't provide this, like, life-affirming, as Nietzsche would say, and it, I feel like that's a hunger on both the left and the right, right? Maybe? To some extent, Marxists, to some extent, Marxists, in a way, are, like, have similar complaints about liberalism, but, like, their answer is obviously way different about just the fact that it's creating these impersonal social relations, right? Like, there's a hunger for real like, you know, so whatever people want to say, quote unquote, real cultural or social relations, whether they're like some sort of equality, uh, 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 like in Marxism or this like hierarchical, like look up to somebody who's going to show you what the values are. And I just wonder if you have thoughts about about that sort of dynamic. Well, uh, you know, this this you might say is a kind of a common thread between the 1992 book, <coughs> The Matter with Liberalism and the and the. 2018 book. So the title, What's the Matter with Liberalism? It's well, the matter is it doesn't have a matter. There's no substance. So <laughs> it's central to the whole liberal idea that, you know, it doesn't, as a political philosophy, dictate what the what a good life should be. It should be up to individuals to figure out for themselves uh, what their good life should be, not the good life for human beings, generally speaking. So there's a kind of moral vacuum on which liberalism prides itself, that it's to the credit of liberalism that it creates space for individuals to figure all that stuff out for themselves. Well, the, the challenge to that is, you know, if you leave a vacuum, then you'll get people you know, who are not liberals diving in and dictate and, you know, writing the script for what a good life should be. And, you know, arguably, both Marxists on one side and, uh, and fascists on the other 
are supplying that kind of lack that for liberals, they know that's part of what liberal, that's what liberalism is meant to be. If it's dissatisfying, it's dissatisfying, but that's, you know, that's the issue there. It goes to the heart of what liberalism actually intends to be, which is we don't legislate what the good is. You know, individuals do that job for themselves. And, you know, that can, that creates a, a, uh, a, a, a problem. And so when, you know, Nietzsche says, well, all you'll get with liberalism is last men, you know, who are just sort of, you know, drifting and then with no idea what their lives should be about. And well, that's, it's, you know, uh, that's, 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 the, that's the normative challenge is that somebody's got to take responsibility for this. If you just leave it to individuals, they're just kind of shrug and you're kind of have cultural vacuity, you know? So, um, uh, you know, I guess the answer to that is that uh, uh, deep, serious reflection on what the human good is is uh, not dispensable. It, it's it's essential to any proper human life that there has to liberalism has to be kind of thicker and concerned more with, and, and certainly appealing to capitalism is not going to help. That the mm. more you kind of draw capitalism at the center of what liberalism is supposed to be, or you identify liberalism, liberal democracy with capitalism. Well, that's that's certainly a, a, a dead end. That that's not going to help in 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 answering cultural fundamental cultural challenges to liberalism and whether it does or doesn't have cultural substance. So I would you know if you if you if you try to you know build liberalism back up normatively that would not in my view that would not certainly not be the way to do it you put as much distance between the normative appeal of liberalism as a political philosophy and capitalism as a particular economic system uh uh you know about which there's a lot that's unattractive and and that sure that can help discredit liberalism that's not going to if if you know you want to defend liberalism over against enemies on the right the, that that would not uh, not be helpful, and it's telling that fascists, including contemporary fascists, they're both anti-liberal and anti-capitalist. Yeah. You know, because capitalism too, it's universalistic. It it you know, it's not attentive to borders between different uh, cultures and different societies uh, or nations, and 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 that the, you know they see they can easily see liberalism as a sort of puppet of, and again, that's kind of parallel to the Marxist view, a puppet of capitalism. Well, I think we have, that's why it's so important to go back to the principles of the French Revolution, that there is a normative, you know, ideal uh, at the heart of uh, liberalism or of the all, you know, all democracy since, um, since the late 18th century that is definable separate from capitalism, you know, uh, it, you know, if, if it, if liberalism is doomed, normatively speaking, if it's, if it's, you know, tied at the hip to capitalism, I would very strongly resist that. Yeah. And the liberalism book is, is, you know, it includes a kind of critique of capitalism. It's, you know, it's a leftist book, uh, but trying to address the kind of, you know, cultural, discontent that liberalism often generates. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, it seems to me that one of the reasons why maybe, I, I was just occurring to me, why um, like leftists have co-opted Nietzsche and these other figures is maybe because like they, they can co-opt that 
at least part of it, that part, that observation from Nietzsche about like the current right. I think that's why they find it useful, probably the left, right? I I totally agree with that. Uh, I think and I think that's actually a very important point. So if if your project is to um, uh, uh, discredit liberalism because it's too closely tied to capitalism, then the, the question is: so who are the most profound critics of a broad liberal egalitarian dispensation? That's why you're drawn to Nietzsche and Heidegger. They just articulate in a deeper way what you know discontents are stirred up mm. by living in a fundamentally liberal society so let's you know our schmidt you know let's find the the kind of the you know the deepest most powerful most robust rejectors of this liberal dispensation so that's why the left i mean it's in that sense yeah more uh uh you know uh, more powerful, more potent resources for a leftist project of discrediting liberalism. That's fine, but what if you know? Once you've discredited it, it's it you know it's the right that's in the saddle and not the left. And I think again, that's a more much more serious problem for us living you know post twenty sixteen. Uh, where the right is on the rise everywhere. And we can't assume, well, let's just discredit liberalism and we'll get some Marxist mm-hmm. utopia. Well, in all probability, we won't. We may get something much, much worse. We'll get Orban or we'll get Putin or we'll get Bolsonaro or we'll get Modi in India or we'll get Donald Trump uh, or we'll get Bannon. Uh, you know, that, 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 in that sense, this, the discrediting of liberalism is now a kind of two-edged sword in the way that maybe it wasn't before this recent right and far right revival. And so leftists, I think, have to take that very seriously. So we're going to keep, you know, drawing our, you know, intellectual sustenance, our resources from these figures, the right. Well, what if the consequence of that is the right wins? Uh, Can't assume that liberalism is the worst thing. So if you destroy liberalism, you'll get something better. Well, no, you could get something much worse. Uh, We knew this in the 20th century. Then we forgot it, and now we're back to, you know, perils of possibly history repeating itself. That brings yeah. up that brings up a question I've had. Seriously, that's why I wrote my book, probably mm-hmm. more than any other reason. I'm wondering why why in the past has um, I don't know, let's say like bourgeois liberal capitalism, or you say such a worry for it now is is the rise of the right. But in the past you know, capitalism and, and sort of liberalism have been so good at co-opting counterculture leftism uh, and sort of turning it against itself, right? Or finding the market for that sort of thing. And then we look at it as, oh, it's been co-opted. Like, oh, Occupy Wall Street failed, uh, well, one, because of disunity, but also because capitalism is very robust and able to take blows like that, co-opt it, find the market for it, and then make those sorts of sentiments work for them. So now we're all wearing no-name knockoff vans, and it's a well-known part. But with the right and the far right, capitalism seems to be at a loss for co-opting that and making it work for work for capitalism. Or maybe it is co-opting it, and then it's changing capitalism to be more right-wing and less egalitarian. I don't know. Maybe that's that. That's a kind of an open-ended question I've been worried worrying about as you've been explaining things. Uh, I think those are legitimate concerns, and I largely share them. I mean, uh, 
you know, leftist insights into the capacity of capitalism to co-opt challenges to capitalism. That's obviously not a trivial issue and it should be taken seriously. That's not what my book's about, but I don't, you know, uh, dismiss any of that. Uh, and, and, uh, um, uh, you know, in terms of Occupy, I mean, Victor probably has more to say about it than mm. I do. But, but I, I, you know, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not, I wouldn't push back against the things you've just said. Yeah, I'm curious. Oh, did you want to? I just wanted to ask one question. Actually, yeah. Uh, first off, I just wanted to say how much Chris would absolutely hate <laughs> oh, uh, everything that's friend. been said here. I was thinking about that in the debate between Pels and Ronnie. Uh, but my question <laughs> is actually, we focus a lot of attention on the Nietzsche controversy, and I think we've kind of not really brought Heidegger into this, uh, in part because, uh, as you mentioned, it's a lot more clear where his political allegiances lay. But can you explain what the appeal of Heideggerianism is to the political left and why we should be reticent to embrace it? Uh, and the other thing that I wanted to talk about is, can one save certain Heideggerian influences uh, or insights from his politics? Uh, and I'm thinking of somebody like Dreyfus, um, and his work on computing. So I read his book, uh, What Computers Can't Do, which is a Heideggerian critique of strong AI theories. Uh, and it was very insightful, right? And a very creative interpretation of it. Uh, but you'd be hard pressed, I think, to say that he's carrying any political baggage uh, into the project. Uh, and he still seems to be getting a lot from that. So I'm just wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, obviously Heidegger is a very rich thinker and one can draw all kinds of things from him and it, he does provide resources for articulating in a powerful way things that are dissatisfying about modernity. And I'm pretty dissatisfied with modernity myself. So, you know, in that sense, I, you know, spent my whole adult life reading and appreciating and learning from Heidegger. And, you know, I don't, wouldn't want to toss that away or say it was a waste of time or that other people are wasting their time with Heidegger. But I think, I think there is a real parallel with Nietzsche in the following sense that it's too easy to say, well, he's apolitical, he's, you know, addressing us as individuals. Uh, and, and, and there is, there isn't a political project. Well, I think there is a political project and it's, I think overlaps substantially. Nietzsche was a huge inspiration for Heidegger in the late twenties, soon after he published, uh, 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 being in time, and it shaped in a decisive way his engagement in the early 30s. And Nietzsche and Heidegger himself says this very clearly that he probably would not have been a Nazi if not for his reading of Nietzsche and his, his the impact of what he felt Nietzsche's fundamental insights to be. Well, you know, Heidegger um, too is that that real culture is hierarchical. That they're, they're, it can't just be, well, you know, everybody figure out for themselves as equal human beings what their life is about. There has to be a kind of sense of a kind of privileged, you know, voice of being. And, you know, he, you know, his politics are volkish because it's as, as a volk, as, as, a, as a rooted people that people can hear with being is saying to them. They can't do it as, as individuals, but that the voice of being speaks uh, collectively. And that's why his politics were collectivist and, and folkish. I mean, to some extent, it kind of moved in a different direction that was radically different from Nietzsche's. 
But I think the fundamental problem that they're obsessed with is pretty much the same. I mean, you know, what Nietzsche called the reign of the last man is what Heidegger calls, you know, modernity's forgetfulness of being. They're two vocabularies are meant to say the same thing. That what modernity presents us with, and this is, has a lot to do with the liberalism and the egalitarianism of modernity, what it presents us with is a cultural void, and they both call this nihilism. And nihilism is, 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 requires a new dispensation, and a new dispensation will have a political dimension. And you can't just kind of uh, arrive at a new dispensation individual by individual. It happens uh, civilizationally. Whole cultures go through a revolution. And, you know, Heidegger thought in the early 30s, Germany had gone through that revolution and had chucked off, you know, the nihilism of democracy, the nihilism of liberalism. Uh, I mean, you know, these are thinkers that are right because, you know, for, you know, Heidegger says, I quote this in the book, Nietzsche's great insight is that democracy is nihilism. Uh, and, uh, I mean, Midley said that in the 30s, he might have expressed it a little differently, uh, you know, in later decades. But he, when he, he actually, when he published the Nietzsche lectures in 1960, he took that line out. And then when he put, he republished the Nietzsche uh, book in his collected works, he put that line back in. That's pretty telling. It tells you a lot about Heidegger, that he's got his, his like Nietzsche, a view of, he's trying to think not in years or decades, he's thinking in centuries. That over centuries, what modernity offers us is unsustainable because there's nothing there culturally. And we have to, have our sights set on some cultural dispensation centuries hence when we will have, again, something that can compare with, uh, you know, the pre-Socratic Greeks. I mean, as, you know, we were, it was said earlier, you, you can't go back, you, you have to go forward, but you want to go back to something that's of equal cultural grandeur to what the Greeks produced. That's the standard. And there's no way that liberal modernity will ever, liberal bourgeois modernity will ever meet that standard. So it has to be rejected. You have to hold out hopes of a civilization that will meet those standards. And that's, that's what sustains Nietzsche and Heidegger. That's their project, is to get, right. get back, not, not get back, but go forward to something that replicates the grandeur, the capacity to, you know, to, to um, plug into the voice of being such that we can have something like what the Greeks had. Uh, and and uh, if you meet that standard, you haven't risen to the heights of what humanity can be. And and that, I think, is essential to both Nietzsche and Heidegger. That's that's the common commonality between them. And that's why I think Heidegger was so decisively inspired by Nietzsche. And I yeah. think we can all agree all right. that Morgan Freeman is the real voice of being. Right. So <laughs> oh, yeah. ultimately, liberal capitalism did produce what he was oh, looking for. All right. So we are at currently um, an hour and almost 15 minutes. So another round of quick questions and quick responses. Um, if there's anything that's still lingering, if we could uh, get to, I guess, yep. what's the what's the takeaways that we should get out of this? Starting with uh, Victor. I think you should have seen by now. I'm not quite capable of quick answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I we'll just, do our best in steering it towards a conclusion. I believe well, I in you to, as the overman to <laughs> overcome 
your own weakness. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I want uh, I wanted to ask uh, Professor Beener about. I think you you may may have told me about this a, wh- a while back, but like, what was some of the reaction you got to your book, uh, especially on the right? Because I think there's maybe an interesting story there. Oh, there is. <laughs> there is an interesting story. Uh, yeah, it, it, it kind of really knocked knocked me off my stride. So the very first um, review of the book, it was a very lengthy review and respectful and intelligent in all kinds of ways uh, and in, uh, intellectually interesting uh, came from someone who is a Nazi. Uh, and I'm not using that in a metaphorical sense. That's what he is. He celebrates Hitler. Uh, he celebrates Hitler's birthday on his website. He's written defenses of Hitler. Uh, so this is Greg Johnson, has a PhD in philosophy from Catholic University of America. His doctoral supervisor is an old friend of mine, Richard Belkley. Okay. I'm sure pains him now, certainly pains me. Uh, and so he runs this site called Countercurrents. And he said he uh, welcomed the book because it would help him uh, make a case for uh, right Nietzscheanism and right Heideggerianism. And that uh, he found, you know, the, the book gave a sufficiently uh, convincing case for Nietzsche and Heidegger being fundamentally thinkers of right, that it would be helpful for him in his campaign to bring back the right. And what the right here means, you know, I mean, he says he doesn't endorse the the genocide and imperialism of of Hitler, but he, he, in a lot of other respects, he's, he's, he's with Hitler. And so, yeah, that was a big, big shock to me. And he uh, tweeted it directly to me uh, with the Beener, you know, if, uh, if, if Beener wants a debate with the alt-right, game on. And uh, I was pretty shocked by that. I actually wrote a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education articulating, you know, my sense of shock and, and the kind of, you know, what it says about, I mean, He's a very smart guy, and if you read the review, still on the website, uh, you know you can see his intelligence. But he is evil, and and <laughs> that uh, you know if you've been teaching political theory as I have for over forty years, that's very sobering. Uh, that someone could go through a kind of humanistic education in philosophy and come out the other end as a uh, as an adherent to Hitler. Um, um, so, yeah, so that, that's got to be <laughs> very fun, in a way, yeah. really was a kind of exclamation point on what the book was about, that, yeah. that yeah. you know, the far right, yeah, they, they're, you know, a lot of them are very serious intellectually. Um, it's hard to say, well, how can you, how can you have that kind of politics and serious intellectually? Well, you know, it's important to be aware that that is possible. And so they, they, you know, they didn't lose any time picking up this book and responding to it. And I think, you know, that review was widely read on the far right. And uh,
Unfortunately, you cut out all the bad parts for them. What do you mean? He cut out all the quotations that are the most amenable to that position. Oh, you mean uh, the book assembled like all the worst quotes of Nietzsche? Kind of like uh, his worst hits in one? I didn't cut that out. There, I quote Nietzsche saying that, you know... No, I don't mean you cut them out. I meant they're all bricolaged in, in order now. So that's why it's helpful to him. Yeah. So I guess I think, so. Oh, right. In the interest of um, closing Again, I wasn't talking to him. I was talking to, you know, colleagues on the left. Um, yeah. Consider myself of the left that, you know, you better take another look at this if you think that Nietzsche is a voice for progressivism. Uh, and think harder about you know who who your intellectual sources are and uh, um, yeah I mean I you know I think Nietzsche himself and I think this goes for Heidegger too Nietzsche would be utterly shocked that he would be received with you know with by an open with open arms by by the left by people <laughs> who are you know, radical egalitarians. And Nietzsche would be scratching his head. How could they read these books and think that he's with them? He's not. Well, what do you say? You know, above all, don't misunderstand me, right? Uh, but uh, actually, I had a question. Okay, Matt, we have to wrap up, if okay. anything. So if it, as long as it's a wrap-up question. Yeah, I've got a no, wrap-up no. question too, I think. Th that's fine. <laughs> no, it's a very quick one. Um, it's just... Um, Corey Robin in his book, The Reactionary Mind, which I quite admire, uh, I have problems with it, but it's very good, uh, points out something that you point out as well, which is that there's always this temptation uh, on the part of many leftists or liberals uh, to assume that people on the far right are just unintelligent, prejudiced, uh, you know, kind of ref, right, you know, roughnecks. Uh, and that's a cliche that we need to dispel. And Robin goes through his book and says, you know, if you look at these guys, whether you're talking about your Carl Schmitz, uh, or your Ayn Rands or your Heidegger's, you know, they have a lot of interesting, provocative things to say that attracts intelligent people. Uh, and I'm wondering, why do you think some intelligent people, educated people, however you want to frame it, uh, are attracted to these far right doctrines? Uh, just again, very briefly. Uh, if possible. No. Uh, well, I've already warned you that I don't give short answers. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think through much of the conversation we've already had, I've been addressing just those things. I mean, if you're if you're looking for uh, uh, powerful ideas uh, and and ideas that are you know Socratic in the sense of you know a, a, a radical attempt to depart the, the 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 cave of you know contemporary society, however you define that cave, these thinkers supply that, and it's on accident that. Nietzsche, you know, nobody heard, nobody knew who Nietzsche was, and the 20th century has been utterly dominant. And same for Heidegger. It's not an accident. It's not an accident when people develop those kinds of followings. And there, there is something uh, that has a lot of force. And and but but just because they're powerful thinkers doesn't mean they will improve the world. They can make the world much worse, and we have to be sensitive to that. And there's there is a kind of you know, uh, important distinction between uh, what a thinker has to offer intellectually and what it might do to our civic life. And, and you know, we're not just thinkers, we're also citizens, and we have to be sensitive to both sides. Um, you know, I could have just gone on reading Nietzsche, and, as I did in my youth, and, and not worry about the civic implications of Nietzsche. But, you know, at this moment, I, you know, I'd say, in a sense, I wrote the book because my 
my sense of civic responsibility trumped my, um, you know, the kind of luxury of just being an intellectual for the sake of being intellectual. And uh, again, as I said at the start, this was a citizen's book. All right, uh, Eric's got one thing to wrap up on, and then we'll say thanks. So this is, this is just the sort of future recommendations, like, okay, so where do we go from here? Uh, so I just want to contrast this with uh, another thinker we covered. I don't know if you've heard of Yoram Hazoni. Uh, he's, he's a religious uh, conservative philosopher or thinker, maybe, from, from Israel, and he yeah, he worries about the rise of Marxism. That's that's sort of his main worry. And the way he frames it is that what the left has to do, the moderate left, has to do is ally with the right in order to bring down this sort of far left, this rise of the far left in term, in the postmodern cultural Marxism, all, all that all stuff. stuff that, that, all that stuff that Peterson yeah, complains that, about that too. Peterson's <laughs> going to float out there. And, and he says that the, the, the left wing needs to ditch the far left because it's just pulling moderate leftists further to the left because they keep having to compromise and make adjustments to their own position. And eventually they'll end up Marxists themselves. This is Hazoni's and they'll be the both. end of liberal democracy, is the yeah, word. Yeah, yeah. But this so, is a bullet. So he uh, sees the end of it coming from from the left, from within the left. It's going to destroy itself. But you have a different kind of recommendation. Your your recommendation at the end of your book is, and you include a list of anti-liberal theorists here: Rousseau, Marx, and Joseph de Maistre, along with, uh, with Nietzsche and Heidegger. But your your recommendation is basically that that yes, we should engage with these thinkers, but no, we shouldn't ignore their nasty bits. We shouldn't whitewash them. We shouldn't um, make them. We shouldn't make them agree with the way we think. If we are liberal thinkers, because we're going to get you say sucker punched by their sort of nastier ideas when people bring those out and say, well, what about this way of what Nietzsche says? What about Heidegger? So maybe you could just, in your own words, maybe uh, say what your own sort of conclusion or recommendation was in your book well yeah that, that was not a short question it was quite a long question yeah, and, it's, sorry about that. and it, it doesn't really uh you know it, it's hard to see how i could give a short answer to it I, there's no <laughs> political program i mean i'm a theorist i'm not a political actor and not mapping out some agenda i think we just have to uh you know and I would said, think what we're doing. We have to be more intellectually reflective about the society we're living in and the potential perils of that society. Um, Hazoni, I've read some of his other work. I haven't read the book on nationalism. I'm very wary about it. And I mean, he's been embraced by Trumpites because he's pro-nationalist and they see Trump's fundamental project as a nationalist project. I that's a project of the right. And I, I, I think, you know, liberals who sought to ally themselves with Hazoni or anything associated with that, I think would, that would be very misguided. Um, but, you know, have not having read the book, I, I, I can't really, you know, get into a dialogue with him, but, you know, he, I, you're right. He, I think the project there, he has a very definite project of con very conservative nationalism uh, I, I don't have a project as an alternative to that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, say, well, the, the, you know, the red lights are flashing here and we're our, and, and our, our 
citizenship as members of a liberal democratic society are uh, is very much you know in in jeopardy and and the stakes are extremely high and people have to kind of wake up as citizens and realize how much is at stake uh i think that i kind of you know limit my prescriptions to that uh, rather mm. than pull something out of my back pocket and say well here's the kind of politics that will save us i mean hopefully other people can do that uh, I don't see that as something I would would attempt, and uh, you know I think uh, in terms of political programs, I'd be too, too modest to attempt attempt such a thing. That's great, great. Well, thank, thank you. you. But Hazoni's different. He he definitely has an idea of what right politics are, and and mm-hmm. I would say not that. Great. Well, is, is that are we good then? Should we wrap up? Yeah. Um, well, Ron. Sorry for getting a little testy in the in the middle there. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, it's it's Socratic Socratic debate. For sure, um, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. If you're interested in what Ron's been talking about, he's Ronnie. About Ronnie. Ron, oh, excuse me, excuse me. The book is called uh, Dangerous mm-hmm. Minds. Is it mostly on Heidegger and Nietzsche, or does there are other people included in there too? The meat of the book is Nietzsche and Heidegger. Yeah, Nietzsche and Heidegger are the core of it. So if you want to, and he never says don't read them, but he says read them with uh, your antennas up, I guess. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone for watching. If you're still watching, I, I don't know if this is on YouTube or if it's on podcast yet. And if you're still listening, we'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> but stay tuned for uh, future content. And thank you so much, Ronnie. Uh, my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. I'm going to pause it here. There it is. Cool.